Is that 10 minutes? That's 21 minutes. Oh, yeah. He likes the like button. He's, he, he drew a like button. You need to just get, a, get, get an Etch-A-Sketch, bro. You have a hard time deleting things. Welcome again to Hashing It Out. I almost said the Bitcoin podcast there just from like pure rote like memory or like what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, habit for <laughs> saying it so many times. Uh, D is, I'm, I'm Dr. Corey Petty. Uh, I'm your second host. D is not talking right now because he his voice is basically gone. So he's writing things. If you're watching this video, that he's the first host. Say something real quick so they understand the uh, sling blade action going on right now. Hey everybody, I'm the host. Talks first. <laughs> D's kid sneezed in his mouth when he was telling him a secret. So now he's sick for a little while, um, or maybe licked his eyeballs. Who knows what kids do? They do weird things. And who's who's in the bottom? Who's this guy at the bottom? And uh, I'm the third host, Jesse Broke. Broke. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. What what tagline is that from? Let's get into it. That's from. I hear that a lot. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know. I've heard it a lot too. Like one of those content creators. That's like that's their that's their tagline. It's like let's get into it. Oh, it's it's um uh the really popular one on on YouTube. The guy who gets all the tech first. Guy who's like the PewDiePie of tech. You know what I'm talking about? Black dude. Yeah. I don't know if that's the one I'm referring to. There's somebody else I'm thinking about. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, this episode Mar- was fun. Marquez Brownlee. I think that's what he says, but I could be really wrong. I've got some sweet hot takes for roundtable after this, but uh, I enjoyed this interview, and I think it's interesting to see. Like last, like last episode, if we air these in the chronologically with how we actually record them, then um, last time we talked about zero sync and then BitVM and this. It's kind of our resurgence into Bitcoin material because there's stuff happening in Bitcoin worth talking about, uh, at least in my eyes, is like the attempt to create a way to have more functionality rooted into the Bitcoin blockchain, allowing for more innovation on top. Layer twos is the kind of canonical term for that. Does that say, do you put it back? It says BTC is in a time capsule, a phantom zone. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it is. We talk about that a little bit, and and like talk about that a lot of it. I think in the episode, he he indicates why he thinks the time capsule was created and what what created it. And then I admit it's interesting now that you're seeing a resurgence and an attempt to use things, as I think people are seeing. I personally think it's a like a acknowledged threat of the rest of the ecosystem success like which one you're is? seeing seeing the adoption of other chains and the i don't know it, 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 there's no reason to use bitcoin if you can do the same thing elsewhere and users don't care um it, it, it do the same thing is kind of in quotations because that's where usually the argument is it's like it's not safer it's not as safe it's not as decentralized it's Right with scams, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But like if I can get my money in, do something with that money, get my money out, it doesn't matter functionally. And so for a lot of people, that's the case. They're able to use the thing for the time period they want to use it. And 
all of the hedges that traditional ideology that started Bitcoin, mainly like self-sovereignty, uh, censorship resistance, you know, be your own bank, remove like delete the defeat the you know traditional financial system, all that stuff is very very long term and doomsday scenario situation, which doesn't account for most of the use in blockchains today. So like they're seeing that success and the and the and the associated fees and growth of the ecosystems and that success, and they need to do something in order to recapture some of it. They can only do that by allowing for some level of innovation on top, namely like what's called L2s. But they got to find a way to make L2s work for a base layer that doesn't like changing. I think uh, you captured the idea of not only this interview, but also the previous one with ZeroSync and the way that, you know, they want to extend what Bitcoin can do right now. And they want Ethereum ideally and all the other alt L1s and their associated L2s to effectively become spokes with Bitcoin being the hub. Just like every other alt L1 wants to develop an ecosystem of L2s with their own L3s, right? So everybody just wants business capture. And that's 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 it at the end of the day. It's really Well, there is a it. difference there which we talk about a little bit and that is um where the incentives pool, right? So like in the eventual use of the system, where does the where do the benefits go? Where do the fees go? Um what does the growth of one part help the growth of the entire ecosystem? Um, is there ability to exit? Are you somewhat captured? And that's kind of like captured is the, um, like, I think is the mantra of the L, like one L1 to rule them all. And the, and the feeling as though that needs to be the case and everything should be built on top of one L1 and only L1. So they want it, they want that to be captured. So like, that means that the only way to do that is if it can scale and the fees, the associated fees of all use somehow benefit the base layer and the ability to exit is uh, not worth it or not available. Whereas kind of a multi-chain ecosystem and bridging is the alternative to that where like you kind of do whatever you want, wherever you want, and then move your assets wherever you want them to go. You can't see that. There we go. BTC needs to learn hard, lean hard into BTC is gold analogy. And full of strong use cases, hard asset value. And that's, I think, kind of the, like, I guess the equivalent of gold, right? Like the technology equivalent of gold is like, this is where you park things. And then... I mean, I think that's what they have done. And that's why it's become so ossified. And that's why these guys are having such a hard time. Um, getting adoption for their ideas i mean it's been yeah but you can't been a long time well right like the, the ability yeah. to leverage that gold and then do derivative things on top of it from a technology yep. standpoint is limited in bitcoin and that's what they're trying to change now is like and that's what that's how l2s generally work which we talk about in the show or the interview is that like you pool that digital gold that bitcoin somewhere somehow using the bitcoin um, rule set, the Bitcoin protocol. And then based on that pooling, 
you're able to do something somewhere else with with strong guarantees that uh, can't get stolen, can't get taken away, whatever, right? And that's how all L1 and L2s work. That's how they'll always work. And they're finding interesting ways to do that, which give different kinds of guarantees. What I think is interesting about 300 is this um, long withdrawal process that I'm not sure works on the time scale that people need it to. So I think I need to look more into that. Kind of like it's, a, it's equivalent to optimism um, and a kind of week-long uh, exit, exit time period such that if there is malfeasance, it can be pointed out. But we can get into that after the show. So when we transition into the interview with Paul Schwartz. Welcome back to the show. Today we have an interview with Paul Storz. Uh I would call you maybe a progenitor of drive chains and BIP 300, but uh, why don't we do the normal thing and you give us a quick introduction as to where you come from, what you do, and, and uh, what you work on today and kind of how you got here. Yeah, the most important thing is that I advance the cause of this drive chain idea. Uh, where did I come from? Well, I originally came from academia. I have a background in statistics and economics. And that got me interested in, you know, a lot of things like um, why, you know, because we had the 2008 financial crisis. So it's kind of like, why is economics so bad? Why does it, why is it so illogical in many ways? That kind of led me into Bitcoin. It also led me into this idea with the prediction market, which I think could basically salvage uh, economics mostly, which is this, another neglected idea. And I actually designed a way of doing Bitcoin prediction markets, but it is so bizarre that it requires side chains in order to work. It actually requires a specific type of side chains. It's that exotic. And so that led me to work on side chains and sort of led me to pick up where uh, Blockstream left off from my point of view. My, my point of view is that they kind of just abandoned the idea and that I picked it up. So those are some important things about me. I've been uh, I, in December 2014. Adam Back linked to a blog post I wrote about that it was a precursor to one that was called "Nothing Is Cheaper Than Proof of Work," which was the really famous one. But I wrote one that was almost the same, where I wrote about a, do a proof of work being like an auction, like auctioning off a briefcase full of cash. And he linked to that, and that was kind of like my big break, so to speak. Then. Um, I became much more popular after that. And then I spoke at scaling, scaling conferences and I speak at all kinds of Bitcoin conferences. Ever since I published technical research, I have lots of ideas. One of those ideas became BIP300 and another one became BIP301. And collectively those are known as drive chain. So how do so you- Can you explain? Oh, just, oh, I was just gonna ask the question because I, I sure. dug a little bit into BIP300 um so i have an idea um but i didn't look into bip 301 which you just made a reference to could you maybe give us the idea of drive chains you know from bip 300 yes. and then extend it to 301 301 is called blind merge mining and merge regular merged mining that was invented by satoshi himself in 2010 and it has been in use ever since it has the disadvantage that you get paid on the what would be called the l2 maybe although in there was no such terminology at the time. And in fact, they are something like Namecoin could exist independently of, of BTC. Whereas in drive chain, that's not the case. None of the drive chains on L, they, they all, they're like lightning nodes or they require L1 
full node to exist in order for them to exist. But the um, uh, in uh, vanilla merge mining, you get paid on the other chain, and you also must run a node of the new thing. You have to run like a name coin node. So in blind merge mining, you don't need to run anything other than the L1 node, and you don't need to do anything other than uh, collect L1 transaction fees, which is what already what the miners do. And as a result, they are uh, they. It's sort of like a slightly better version of merge mine, but it's really not that interesting now because even though I think I still think we should uh, add it to Bitcoin, but there are many ways uh, to emulate it already. So Ruben Thompson invented a few ways that are sort of worse, but they already exist. And Super Testnet has also implemented a few of these that already exist. So this this technique is already made it into Bitcoin. It's only used in silly things like, uh, I think, a space chain. I think that's kind of a silly idea, but but some people like it. And uh, this has already been used. So it's kind of like that one has already been pushed across the finish line. But we should still do the, the original design because it maximizes the actual byte efficiency of, of everything. It's, it's really it's because we can already do it that we might as well do 301. It's just a different kind of merged mining. Merged mining is a very counterintuitive and bizarre thing that not a lot of people understand. Uh, so we could go into that um, or we could not. But the the gist of that is that you can a miner can find two blocks, a block for different blockchains all at the same time with no additional work. A really de minimis, like absolutely negligible amount of work that has no additional SHA-256 hashing, not, none of that work. So that's a fascinating idea uh, when it comes to side chains because it, just solves the sidechain problem is this big problem, but it, something like merge mining cuts most of the problem away. And it was invented by Satoshi and it's been in continuous use. So 301 is not that interesting. And I don't think, as far as I'm aware, there's no controversy over 301. There's just various people who sometimes temporarily misunderstand what it means to have a fee spike or that fee spikes are bad or that there's anything we can do about them. So people sometimes run into those little snags, but then they usually escape from those snags all by themselves. So I, I think 301 is not controversial and it already exists. And it, uh, so it's not that big of a deal. But that 301 governs how each sidechain's blocks are found. So block, 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 block. Where are the blocks coming from? BIP 300 does the deposits and the withdrawals to and from the sidechain L2. I see. So it seems to be... Uh, last week we spoke with um, Robin Linus from ZeroSync. So yeah, it seems to be the um, ecosystem development with respect to building on top of the Bitcoin blockchain is different ways in which you can leverage or root into the Bitcoin blockchain and the either the different technology used to do so or the different kind of trade-offs associated with it. I was reading through the drive trade peer review stuff where you go over the main the main criticisms and why you don't think they're legitimate. Um, right. But can you talk about maybe the differentiation from um, a method like zero sync using like leveraging zero knowledge stuff to root into the Bitcoin blockchain and how drive chains do that and what the main, I guess, differences are in your, in your opinion? You mean zero sync or do you mean BitVM? BitVM, zero sync. Bit yeah. I see, like, see BitVM as a leveraging. Well, they're, they're very different, though. Uh, well, uh, well, yeah, zero sync is Robin Linus's project to make it much easier to run a full node and have it sync instantly. Sync yeah. 
So instead of having everyone download everything and check everything and then serve everything to everyone else, you get like this, this little, this little item that comes with this snapshot of the state and that proves that it, you reach the state the right way. And that has many uh, advantages and that's zero sync. Yeah, it's like a, so, I see that as like a foot in the door to start yeah, people I mean, to leverage the technology. A pretty big disadvantage of that is that we don't live in a world where people are constantly being tricked into coming onto the wrong blockchain. So and another disadvantage of it is that we don't live, we, we must, someone must serve the data. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a great idea and we should do it. And it, you know, more getting more research into Bitcoin is, is always good. But we, someone must, you know, if someone asks you for the block, it doesn't solve data of it, what's called data availability. Mm -hmm. So if someone asks for the block of like, what was block 300,014, if no one on earth has that block, and this actually happened to Ripple or something, <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of blocks that went missing. But if no one has this block, we don't know when it is revealed. If someone may reveal it, grind it into existence through trial and error or something. When it's revealed, we don't know if it's, going to be valid or invalid. So we have to assume that it's invalid <laughs> because we don't know. And so we have to reorg it out. You see what I mean? If we assume it's invalid and we reorg it out, then it just never existed. But if we assume it's valid and then we include it and then it later turns out it was invalid, then we're doomed because we have like a multi-year reorg or more likely. And then mm -hmm. so if it's invalid, it could print like a hundred, it could have printed like a hundred million coins or broken any kind of rule. So. So that's an issue. The data availability is really the big issue. And zero sync does not uh, solve that, but that's great. Zero sync is still great. You still have like a, a, um, a thing on a phone, like a full note on a phone. <clears throat> um, uh, BitVM is also kind of cool. BitVM is where people sit down to play a game. They fund this, this thing. You have uh, this prover verifier system where if Anyone ever does something wrong if they wait too long to respond or if they make some kind of invalid action, the, they can, their money can be slashed. And in, in when you go into such a state, you can make these interesting contracts where you put yourself in danger or risk of being slashed and you could like, you know, play chess or whatever against someone for money. A disadvantage of BitVM is that people cannot join, join it or leave it. Um, once it's set up, it's very hard to get more people to join. Although I'm sure there must be possible ways with like trees of people like, but you still need like some new action uh, to get people in. Whereas with Bit300, the coins move over. It's the coins that move. They're not attached to an identity. Uh, the coins move over and then they can change hands on the L2. Now I didn't realize when I first came up with this idea, <coughs> um, I thought that was kind of a footnote, but now I see that it's probably the thing that will make this the winning L2 out of them all. Because everything else is too much of a handicap to be useful. And there's also various contradictions that arise in in, in trying to always make it, for example, stuff like Arc or stuff like um, Lightning, Arc, uh, whatever. They make it so that it's always possible to go from L2 to L1. But this is a mistake, I think, because think about it. 8 billion people can't use L1. And so if 8 billion people are on L2, what does it matter if the system gives them a way to all each go? Because they can't fit on L1. So, they, so the ability to unilaterally go back is not worth it. 
Uh, it, it's never going to, it doesn't actually achieve anything. And what you need is to some system where people on L2 can buy or sell the coins before it can re-aggregate them before going to L1. And the whole point, the, the only, you can't have both at the same time. You can't have a, where anyone can instantly go back down or where one where they, they have to change hands because um, that's what the person is buying who is going to self-aggregate them. So that was maybe a little uh, weird for me to say, but the those are some of the um, some of my thoughts about all those. Yeah, Robin yeah, is Robin is a huge supporter of Bit Three Hundred. Also, <laughs> for what yeah, it's I'm, worth. I'm definitely. Yeah, I like the idea of this. I guess proliferation of ideas of how to scale. Yeah, that's what we need. Yes, we need to do that. And we must. We must fight against the mistaken view of that everything has already been fixed in bitcoin and that lightning is perfect and is a scaling messiah and has already uh, saved us all that idea will be the idea that actually kills bitcoin unfortunately fortunately this new thing revealed this week has further it must be fixed with this like new opcode that causes uh, an output to expire and uh, that will then show people that lightning this is going to be like the seventh or eighth soft fork that is needed to support lightning. And this, I think, will show people that, in fact, we should go further. We should do covenants to do arc, which is also like a leave lightning and go somewhere else. And we should, in fact, do BIP300 so that we can just try all kinds of other different blockchain designs also. And we must throw the door open to competition. So I think it's very... Um, um uh, we this new lightning news is good culturally because it will break up this colossal mistake which is the single biggest threat to bitcoin which is this idea that everything is perfect <laughs> with the bitcoin tech stack and that we no one needs to think about anything or do anything um so even though it's a sort of bad short-term news it's very good long-term news because it's, it speaks to the fact that people might finally wake up for the need to continue to do work on bitcoin we did the, in the first seven years of Bitcoin's existence, we did something like 16 or 17 different soft forks. Mm -hmm. And then uh, since then, we've only done SegWit and Taproot. And it took SegWit 20 months from when it was first proposed to when it was coded and then it finally activated. It had a long, contentious activation. We remember. From, uh, yeah, October <laughs> to August. So, so it took about a year to be made and then a year to activate-ish. And then uh, Taproot took was proposed January uh, 2018, right after SegWit was activated. But it wasn't until November 2021, 46 months. So 20 months, 46. So we have to get that number back down to what it was before, which is uh, six months to so the previous average. So How do you, I guess, oh, I was just going to say, so what's the driving force behind drive chains, pun intended? In well, I just think that honestly, like as, at first I thought, Okay, I came up with the idea because I was interested in prediction markets, as I said. And there's no, I came up with this convoluted prediction market thing, which would have been very disrespectful to bolt on. This is like my weird pet project. It's very experimental and bizarre. So I knew that it would not, you know, Bitcoin would not trend. That would be like kind of like changing Bitcoin into something like uh, Monero or something. So changing it to Mimblewimble or something. So I kind of knew that wouldn't happen. But I knew that I was, I had, you know, I had asked around about, well, what do we do? Like, how do we, what if someone wants a completely different design? So I was aware of the sidechain idea. This was back in like 2013, 2014. And I said, well, this would be a sidechain of Bitcoin. So that's how I first got into sidechains. 
And then I was researching the idea and people had, um, they had, they were a little confused about the idea because, and they still are. Many of the people still are some people like Peter Todd. And I think even the likes of uh, Greg Maxwell and uh, et cetera, mm -hmm. many of them are still, they have they stumbled over this one thing that they can't, they, they can't recover from, which is to me, it's just a clear mistake, but they, I think they just tripped over this root or something and they just cannot get off of it, which is the, they can't keep, a bunch of things organized straight the l1 costs versus the l2 costs versus the those are node costs and then the mining costs these are different things and then pool costs actually yet a third thing if you keep them all straight you see that they all work out in their own little column but if you accidentally lose track of which is which you get confused as, as unfortunately i think they did because one of the things they said was um they thought that it, it would be no good to scale with side chains um and so I investigated this claim in 2015 because this block size debate had been heating up in 2015. And I thought, well, why can't we just have a large block side chain? And, uh, you know, because then small block people get small block chain, large block people get large block chain. To what extent are the small blocker people really kind of like coerced by the back door to like have what is de facto a block size increase? So I was really interested in that. And... What I discovered was in Blockstream's design was like unfinished and it was uh, not really great. And they did have some of these properties that they that they thought it, they feared it might have. And it also it didn't. Kind of a long story. I could get into those weeds if you want. But basically I was like, we could do it a different way. It's much simpler. Uh, and I published DriveChain in November, 2015. And one of the reasons, one of the motivations for posting it was my own uh, prediction markets idea. But another way was just that like Ethereum was getting big at this time. Ethereum had been proposed like January 2014, but it didn't come out until like mid 2015, really. It was like vaporware. And then you had stuff like, you know, you had like bit shares, you had like all the stuff, whatever, NXT, you had like this weird stuff that come out. Counterparty was kind of getting big at the time. Just they're all slightly different from each other, of course. And but the big one was um Gavin Andreessen and Mike Kern had put out Bitcoin XT, the hard, the eight megabyte hard fork. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, we can, and everyone was, you know, the whole thing was like, how do we keep the community together? How do we solve the problem of maintaining decentralization? So previously, this is becoming a long run on story. I hope it's not too boring, but that November, 2015 was uh, the drive chain blog post. And then before that in September, 2015, I had published an essay called Measuring Decentralization because I was trying to figure out what, are, what are, you know, each side wants something. So we have a, the small blockers want something and the large blockers want. And I was trying to think, well, how can we give both people what they want? And I was like, what is it that the large blockers have a problem with? Okay. They want, they always want there to be block space. They want the fees to be low. If they broadcast a transaction, they want to get it into the next block. They don't want to wait for, Lightning Network or some other new thing that hasn't been fully invented yet. And so I was like, okay, fine. The small blockers, what do they want? And I was like, well, uh, what they want is the cost of running a full node to remain low. The thing is, even at the time, and to this date, like most people agree with me about that, but not all. Some people really think that some other thing is also important, but I think those people are wrong. They don't realize what they want, unfortunately. I mean, which is a weird position to, for me to be in. But I, I carefully, very carefully tried to figure out every single thing 
you know, I tried to read everything on the subject and, and talk to all those different people and listen to their podcasts and whatnot. A lot of the other stuff that people think they want doesn't make sense. So I can give you one example or four more if you're curious. But one is like Please. people want it to be easy to to begin to mine. They so we want it, we don't want it to be difficult for us to start our own mining operation. So they thought if we have large blocks, it'll be too hard to like sink a full node and too expensive. You know, that's literally that. But you see how that that kind of doesn't really make any sense because if you're worried about how expensive it is to mine a block, it's a hash thing. That's not a yeah, block. Thing. It's a hash thing. It's not a block thing. Exactly right. Like the that's exactly it. Which is your full node is going to check whether or not each block meets the difficulty requirement. But it doesn't matter what the difficulty requirement is. It's just whether or not some number is less than some other number. So if you really want it to be easy to mine, then you want the difficulty to be lower. But if you want the difficulty to be lower, then you're just removing proof of work from Bitcoin. Like the difficulty, it just it is what it is. There's one maybe small argument that the larger the block gets, the larger the latency is and like right. block saturation once you find something, which gives people with like lower network of it, like resources a little bit of a detriment, but you already yes, have you situations have like that anyway. Yes, you have an excellent memory that was indeed one of the things floating, one of the other things floating around at that time. Mm -hmm. But by 2014, the block orphan, this what what had exactly happened at around this time was, uh, in 2014, the blocks had naturally started to become big enough for this latency effect to take hold where a miner would download the block, they would see a new block, they would download it and validate it. And this would take a little bit of time, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 seconds, you know, just a little bit. But however, during that time, they would not be mining the next block, they would be mining, they, they, don't, they don't switch block, blocks yeah. until they're finished. So as a result, the, you could see in these two charts, as the blocks became fuller, the orphan rate started to go up. It went from basically zero to like went up. But by 2015, it had already crashed back down to zero because the miners had already set to work solving this problem. And th what they had done speaks to the exact heart of this issue and exactly where still to this day, even the likes of people like Peter Todd and I think even Greg Maxwell were, were, became confused. Uh, Greg hasn't commented on this issue in a very long time. So I don't know. Maybe he, I don't know what he's up to. He's on vacation or something. But the, the heart of the matter is this. The miners started to cut corners and cheat. They use SPV and spy mining to just switch to the next block without validating it at all. Mm -hmm. And what they had hit on was the fact that miners, this is where I disagree with, out of all the things, people, Satoshi had all these things, and then people have their thing, you know, Satoshi was a genius, or they have Satoshi didn't get everything right. I think Satoshi got almost everything right, but there was one thing he didn't quite get right, which is that he seemed to really think that every miner must run a node. But the miners are pursuing efficiency. They, their job is to hash as cheaply as possible. And if the node starts to get in their way, then they cut the node. They can and should and will and did. They cut the node. And now the miners don't run nodes. And the question is, is this some kind of crisis? And uh, to this day, I think it's people have confused themselves a little bit about this. Because on one hand, we say we want everyone to run a node and we want everyone to be able to run a node. So we think, wait a minute, if miners aren't running a node, this trips off, this sets off the immune system and says, wait a minute, that's bad. But actually it's not. The key is your node, it protects you from mistakes made by a miner who does something wrong. 
So it's because you run a node that you don't care if the miners do or not. So I'm not sure. This is like a very advanced point. I meant that's all it is. No, you just the heart of the matter is that your full node is protecting you, and the miners are they're going to cut corners if they can. If, if this five or six seconds, because remember, of course, the intro block time is 600 seconds, 10 minutes on average, 600 seconds. And so six seconds is already, you know, 1%. And the um, uh, it can sometimes be longer and um, it, it's 600 seconds on average, but, you know, half the time it is shorter than that. And, you know, something like 10% of the time, it's much shorter than that, you know. So losing a few seconds actually is like a, minus 20% <laughs> loss of profit of, of revenue efficiency. And so, I mean, of course, profits are revenue minus costs. So the, the effect on profits can be utterly enormous if everyone is doing this spy mining and you're not. Turns out though, spy mining and SPV mining have no negative consequences whatsoever um, because they just let you switch over the block as soon as your competitor finds it. What you do is you take a tiny amount of hash and you connect to, if you're the pool administrator, so your foundry or someone, you connect to the other pools and you see when do they switch their person to the next, and then you just switch yours, that's spy mining. Now the question is that people always wondered is, is this going to ruin, is this going to destroy Bitcoin? Because if all the people, everyone in the mining community is not running a node, well, isn't it liable to just go off in a different, a different direction? But that is the mistake. That is what people failed to keep organized in my view. Because it can't, it can't derail. If you're running a full node, it's because you are running a full node that it, it can't derail. If, it, if someone mines an invalid block or something, or if there's a block that just doesn't exist, your node will reject it. And so it's because you are running a node. It's because it's cheap to run a full node. It's because we encourage, paradoxically, it's because we encourage people to run full nodes that it doesn't matter if the 100% of the mine, mining network does not run a full node. And so... This is the key to unlocking it all. If you think I'm some kind of like crazy crank or a genius or whatever, kind of hinges on this point because the whole idea of sidechains is the users run whichever sidechain node they want. So the users are voluntarily stacking up full node costs for themselves. And then whether or not the miners feel an incentive to run these sidechain nodes or not literally doesn't make any difference. So it doesn't even matter if they if they feel if they feel they must or if they feel they don't need to or if they feel like they want to get certainty over the withdrawal status or if they want to just get it from a friend or if they want to just guess a lot of or they want to just do what they think other miners are doing. My whole point is that it doesn't none of it makes any difference with, because the miners they'll just do whatever the efficient thing is anyway. If the efficient thing is to have one person on the planet Earth, run the side all side chain nodes, and then the miners just call them on the phone and ask. It doesn't matter. Or if they all feel this is because I get it from I get criticism from all sides. So, or if it's the case where the miners, someone designs something where the miners must run, and then it's a mandatory cost for miners. That doesn't matter either because so many things are mandatory costs with miner. Actually, a mandatory cost will cause the difficulty to drop and actually reimburse the miners indirectly, but. But that, you know, it doesn't matter because miners already spend, they already have a mandatory cost. They already must purchase the latest, latest ASIC hardware. Yeah. They already must must do whatever the efficient cooling thing. They have to do economy. The yeah. economies of scale come into play for mining yes. operations right. at this there's point. Huge economies of scale and diseconomies of scale. So there's some efficient scale that is the most profitable. 
And every other scale is like at some kind of disadvantage or another. Mm -hmm. So the idea that one scale is not like that we should panic unless the scale is like what we think it is, is that that's, that's a completely dead idea. I got a few directions in the way I'd like to take this conversation. I'm trying to think about which way I want to go because um, I'm interested in like what you just said springboarded nicely into why drive chains work is that users kind of keep track of what they want and then leverage the, the, the mining community to make sure that um, things move forward as they're supposed to, however they want to end up doing it. So like, how do you have that guarantee? How do you, how do you, basically permissionlessly innovate by having whatever drive chain you want uh, rooted into the Bitcoin blockchain and let miners do their own thing. I know that's like part of the merge mining process, but like the way I see any layer one, layer two scenario is you're pooling funds via some contract on the main chain. And then based yes. on the security of those pooled funds, you make an inference and move them around where in various ways on the layer two. And then whenever someone wants to leave, they can basically sign a message that says, I want to leave. This is how much money I have. Give it back to me on the main chain. Like, right. How is that operating? Like, how are you pooling funds on the layer one and then granting those kind of security guarantees to the layer two via drive chains? Yeah, I have, I have what would be probably described conventionally as the weakest security model of the L2s. And for a while, I fully agreed with that. But as time goes on, I now actually, my own idea is growing on me a little more. And I actually think it's the other the others that are um, will end up being insecure. Uh, who knows? Time will tell. But, um, but basically, on in Bit300, all the coins sent to a certain side chain they're all in one utxo so when you deposit you thread the utxos and you just keep you have like an account and then there's this one account that maybe it has like fifty thousand btc in it and over on the side chain there's fifty thousand coins each deposit creates a coin over there and the coins over there are governed by their own piece of software now a distinction between bip 300 and most other l2s is that as you sort of said most l2s they give you something that where you can at any time take that L2 information and put it on L1 and get your coins back. So like Lightning does this the most obvious way. Mm -hmm. And so hence people think that Lightning is the most secure. But uh, And so would I have said that probably maybe even like 18 months ago. But now I kind of think it's, uh, it's actually not uh, going to work out um, in that direction great really well so i'll explain what i mean by that in a second but what i'm trying to get at is everything gives us unilateral withdrawals I mean, like arc it's always giving you this thing so that if the arc super node gets hit by a meteor or if your lightning channel parties all they'll go awol you have something that you can take on l1 and get your coins back and you think well of course what's the alternative you know of course we need that but what Bit300 does instead is it says the whole withdrawal thing is just up in the air. It's a wet concrete. It hasn't been decided yet. And it could theoretically never be decided. And I, what I say is instead, what's happening is the miners can collect all these fees, which is an enormous amount of money. The fees, like, for example, Ethereum's daily fees are millions of dollars a day. Um, on, on a random day when I did the math, 
there were 7.2 million. Of course, it varies from time to time. You can go to a site like CryptoFees.info to see what they are today. Usually on the weekend, they are a little lower, I think. 2 million, though. So, Seven-day average, 2.3 million. 2.3 for the last week. Um, so millions per day. And, uh, you know, millions per day, that is... So if, it's basically like a, it's a killing the goose that lays the golden egg type situation, where you say this goose is laying millions of dollars a day if we keep it on. Or we can, you know, we could kill the goose and take the money on the sidechain because in BIP300, the miners can take all of the money. They are the ones who set the withdrawal location. And it's not so easy as they just take it the next day. They have to wait a very long time. They have to fully endorse this pro long, lengthy process where it's all governed by this one hash that is the same in two locations. So it's very, very, very transparent. It's all very intentional. There's no sense in which something is like, oh, we made a mistake or we got confused. It's very, very, very slow. So a metaphor I often use is like you're in the people buzzing the person out of prison where they have the two gates and they go and they knock on the door and then they buzz and the next gate closes and then they buzz them again to get out with like a big plexiglass window. So it's kind of like that. So the miners can take this money and move it wherever they wish. And that's what a lot of people think like, wow, that's insane. <laughs> but, and I would kind of have agreed in the past, but now I'll try to give you an idea of why I think actually mine is going to end up being the only sane one. And one, the two big reasons are 51% hash rate can already interfere with every L2 because they can interfere with every L1. If you, if you have a proof of work blockchain on L1, the 51% hash rate determines what the blockchain's state mm -hmm. is. It determines which blocks have been found. So, uh, so that's already the case that they can, for example, censor the lightning justice transaction and prevent it from ever making it in to the blockchain. And so they can already empty someone's channel. And is, it you worth, not... is it even worth having arguments that are equivalent to 51% attacks? Because like if you right. don't have, if you don't have no. a network, if you have a 51% majority mining. But what people say, correctly so, is that it's not as though the miners are like born with like a type, like evil, good. And if you just, you just cast the dice and you hope that it's 65% good or something. You know, the, the idea is that they would respond to this with the incentives of the system and then maybe some of them would be persuaded to become evil or something like that. So, but I agree with you is this is partly what I'm driving at is that they can hold any UTXO hostage or any transaction hostage. So even something uh, like a multi-sig or like liquid or whatever, the miners, if they really hate it for some reason, they can just interfere with it disable it at, at the very least and in almost all cases steal from it so they can already do that um and the question is just uh will they want to and that is where the second part comes in which is the fees in bip 300 all the, it's an l2 but all the fees go to the l1 miners so it's the vertically integrated incentive it's the same Whereas in the other L2s, this just doesn't, isn't the case. The lightning node operator is going to collect the fee or the arc super node is going to collect the fee. And now that uh, some years have passed and we've, I've gotten a, a clearer look of how this is supposed to look, it's come into focus a little bit more. I really think that actually it's, it's, it's not going to be great if, for example, you have something that's getting 2.3 million in fees is on the L2 but the miners are cut out from that and they only get the L1 fees, which are usually like 400,000 a day or something like that. 
uh, you can check the uh, site and see. 522. Uh, 522. So we can. So it's 10x more fees, but the miners are kind of thinking, well, this is all. This is only possible because of us. We could we could close this down at any time. Now, and that's of course this is again. This is only a tiny glimpse of what the future will be like. And my guess is that the L1 fees on the future will stay at around 500,000. But the L2, the total number of L2 transactions, I think could glow, grow to a planetary scale um, very, very quickly. And that if we're talking like Visa is 100 million in revenue per day, at least. And, uh, and then yeah, that's before you count whatever WeChat pay or everything that's in cash. So I think the the L two fees will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow on an exponential curve that uh, just grows for a long time, and so uh, there will eventually be some kind of conflict if 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 the L two fees are like ten thousand times higher than the L one fees, the miners would then might be a little bit like, wait a minute, like should we? <laughs> Why don't we just make ourselves the L one? Right. Why don't we just make ourselves the L two and then it kind of a uh, or maybe they say they have a little, they have some kind of euphemistic program because the incentives aren't aligned. They say, well, use the foundry lightning channel or something. And then this kind of just becomes BIP 300, but worse since BIP 300 is designed with it in mind that the miners can steal. We at least force them to go through this extremely slow, transparent month long process. And so, cause it's designed for that. And so that's why I actually think it's, um, it will end up uh, doing pretty well. I was kind of ashamed of this part of it before, but now I kind of think it was going to hold up because the economics is stronger than it's much stronger to have to be in a situation where the miners want the L2 to do well and where they want people to use it. And they, to the point where they would be maybe hire developers and purchase billboards and things, you know, purchase Super Bowl ads, but they want it to work. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And whereas the lightning stuff is more paranoid and it says everyone's out to get us, including the miners. And it makes much like most paranoid people, it makes too many trade-offs, which undercut the purpose of what they're, you know, it's like you're building a bunker in your backyard. It's kind of like, it's just, it's not an efficient way. If you really thought that you needed a bunker, then you should probably be doing something else. Try to get on Joe Rogan or something and explain to other people, start some kind of political movement or something, you know, like it's not really going to work. The odds that that's going to be the decisive thing. So, so that's kind of um, a little bit of the lay of the land. Uh, as I see with the whole L2 situation, the fees, it's this idea that 51 fighting the 51% is kind of not going to work. And, the uh, the fees are the key, um, so I think the f the fees are the like the big difference. The, the, this we would think would be an irrelevant detail, but it, it ends up being pretty pretty relevant. I think otherwise you have to have some kind of situation where the lightning operators are going to pay periodically, but you have like collective action problem. You have stuff like that. Well, you so. end up with a larger economy of scale because efficient node operators have to run both chains at the same time. Uh, well, well, yeah, this incentive, I think this is a Peter Toddism that we really need to care about whether or not people feel pressure to run the nodes. But again, I don't care at all because it's all consensual. You know, like they say that if they want certainty on the blockchain state, then they can run a node. If they don't and they just want to guess, then they can. 
The idea that the full node costs will be significant, this is a, a, a hangover from the block size war. That was the whole dispute about large blocks versus small blocks, as I said uh, you know, a few minutes ago. I said the small block people want to keep the, the cost of running a full node. Down. Some you're being people are being forced to keep to um, in the, the the small blockers problem was that they would be forced to pay for a, a, a node whose costs could grow to an unlimited degree. But this is a completely different situation from that. No one's forced to run any of the new nodes at all. In fact, the, the each each sidechain node is its new option. So it's kind of like a bunch of different hotels that you might visit. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of like, a, should we turn voluntarium, voluntarism type thing? Yes. If I want to see this, then I have to run it. It's kind of like, should I, I build? Data, I need to run these things. How do I fit eight billion people into my house? And we're like, okay, we'll build a giant tower. And it's kind of like, well, you can see how if you already own the house, it's you're not you're not in love with that idea. But um, if but if it's like, okay, uh, instead we'll let you leave the house and visit these other places. Then the complaint doesn't work anymore because someone's saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want there to be a tower. He said, but it doesn't matter because there'll be all these different things. Maybe one will be a tower. It'll be the Roger Veer Tower, you know? But maybe one will just be like some kind of uh, Four Seasons or something, you know? And it'll be really nice and you will like it. So the idea that we have to care about the full node costs is, again, missing slightly the point. The point was in the block size war was that everyone was in the same building. Mm -hmm. So it was like, do we want this to be a, a single family home or do we want it to be a super tower or do we want it to be something else? And of course, this was, I think, the big problem politically with the large blockers. They had many problems. Both sides did, of course. But politically, they had no actual alternative. Like they had, you can't beat something with nothing, they say. And they just kind of said, we will hard fork to eight megabytes now and then we'll hard fork to something else later. And it was kind of like, what? It's kind of like a big question mark, like what? Oh, well, the 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 the. If my memory serves me correctly, it was this isn't a network problem now. We'll deal with it when it is a network problem later. So right, allow so it to artificially it. inflate until it becomes an issue, and then we'll deal with it appropriately. It's versus, like we'll build, we'll yeah, we'll bulldoze the house, and we'll keep adding stories. And we're like, well, how do we know that we'll still be able to do that? And then they're like, well, we'll figure it out figure it out later. So people don't want to really hear, we'll figure it out later. But with BIP300, it actually is fixed permanently because you just say, here's a single, everyone starts in the single family home. All the coins start in the single family home. They can go somewhere else. <clears throat> so they could go to some place that is a tower or is something that's medium sized or something that's really, really infinitely sized. And you can go, come or go as you please. So now it, it's up to, it's the whole problem is kicked away to a different group of people, the L2 developers who compete against each other to try to solve that problem. And they push the envelope as far as it wants to be pushed. I mean, most of the transactions today are USDT on, on Tron. So apparently that's enough for, that's enough decentralization for like a huge market segment. So this, the point is that it, this actually is a final solution because the, the question was what size house should there be? But with this, it just says we start in the small house <clears throat> and then we go to any we go to any house we want, anyone that anyone builds somewhere else of any size. And th in the future, you can knock them down, build new ones, or do nothing. So, so that well, is a like, big difference. Yeah, it's a 
probably appropriately analogous to like real estate, right? Like you can, you can take responsibility of a bunch of different houses if you want to, but not right. everyone is forced to do so. So you can make a business out of, you know, doing real estate, making money off that, off the right. scarcity of that real estate, or just be happy with the one that you have. And then again, the, the drivetrain critics get something slightly wrong again, where they'll say, well, okay, there's no literal requirement, but miners have to do, you know, if, if miners are making a bunch of money from these side chains, then it'll become a de facto requirement, just like it's a de facto requirement to use ASICs and not uh, CPU mining or something like that. But again, what they don't get is that that's true of every mining, everything that's ever been done in mining. So like, it, they're going to go down the line and say, make sure we're gonna, we have to run immersion cooling by these people. There's a prejudice against the drive chain because it is, uh, is the only mining activity really that takes the form of a piece of software. But there's all these other things like the ERCOT demand curtailment credits. That's a situation where the, the government is paying miners not to mine. Um, that's only viable at certain scales, you know, like you have to be big enough scale to like negotiate this deal with, uh, I'm not sure exactly the details of that, but I, we can assume it would not have existed at all if mining was not at a certain scale. You know what I mean? Because the power company has to find it in their interest to shut off enough electricity. So there has some scale to that. There's some cost to that and there's some benefit to that. So there's innumerable things. You go down the line, there's hundreds of things um, that could affect mining and have different costs and benefits. And so why be prejudiced against this one? And then if you investigate more, because of course each thing that affects mining will affect what is the equilibrium efficient miner look like. But this is the perfect thing for mine. This is the thing that gives them enormous amounts of revenue from serving actual users of Bitcoin, people paying Bitcoin transaction fees using the Bitcoin blockchain or the L2 blockchain. Um, it, it must cost almost nothing because the miners don't need to run nodes. They can uh, get a node. They can co co collaborate with a, a, an existing sidechain full node. This is what 301 does. Even if they couldn't, the node costs must be small because in order for the network to have users, there must be some people running sidechain full nodes. So there's no way this can cost as much as like, you know, an, an S19 or something, you know. There's no full node, no matter how expensive, can cost as much as many mining, small-scale mining operations. Uh, cost. So this is something that costs basically nothing, produces a huge amount of revenue for miners, um, and it doesn't even, they don't even need to like, they can just use, they can have a node that's like far away, you know, like an, an AWS node that they create, that they like VPN into, you know, they don't even need to like physically put anything anywhere. It's just a URL. So this is among the among the things that affect miners' costs. This is one of the best because the more miners earn from serving actual users and customers and transaction fees, the more loyal they will be to the health of the Bitcoin network. Versus, they'll be loyal to like we don't really want them to be loyal to the government of Texas and what they think, you know, what they how much they think they people should be paid to not mine at all. And I don't have anything against that program. I think that program is great. I'm just saying that uh, with these people who would complain about this this, this topic of the sidechain full nodes, they would to be logically consistent. They have to complain about literally every single thing that miners would do, since they all affect the costs or revenues in some way or another.
I uh, want to ask you, so like two questions, they're kind of different, so you can pick. Uh, how close do you feel your drive chain idea is to being adopted by, you know, Bitcoin Core? And then another question, uh, why not go to Ethereum and then try out your prediction markets idea? Because it seems like that's what you're trying to build to, right? With the LTS. Uh, yes. Uh, well, you know, um, I think actually the Ethereum is not great for prediction markets or oracles, but it's a kind of a technical reason that involves the oracles copying each other's work and being unable to gain a premium for being honest since they, someone can always copy them. Uh, and that is why you need a certain type of sidechain, I think, to do the peer-to-peer -peer oracle. But I think the peer-to-peer -peer oracle is very experimental, and uh, I really hope that it does work or that it it pushes the envelope in oracle research to something that's much better than what we usually get, which is just like multisig with like some arbiter, which mm -hmm. I really, really hate. And I think we have to go way past that if we're going bigger, to get bigger, bigger multisig seems to be the path. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So that's kind of disappointing. Um, so I think that's the goal. Uh, I think what I've discovered though, is that this idea is much more important for Bitcoin than I would have thought. Uh, there's too much, the block size war is just one example of disagreement. And the fact that Ethereum exists at all is another example of disagreement. Of course, Vitalik was a Bitcoiner and he, he was co-founder of Bitcoin magazine and he used to write mm -hmm. Bitcoin magazine articles. And he was a big Bitcoiner. And the whole reason that any of these altcoins exist at all is because, just because we don't have sidechains, I think. People would still launch uh, coins, but they would be like very frivolous coins. They would be like Feather Coin or something. They wouldn't be yep. something with real, something that has more fees per day than the BTC has. That would never have happened if we had sidechains. And we would have a more, you know, so like the idea allows Bitcoin to have like planetary scale in some form. Not the ideal form, but it gives lets us give eight billion people some kind of UTXO, and it gives a Zcash level privacy, and it gives like uh, you know Ethereum level uh, flexibility, and it lets us do these other things. It creates competition for developers, so it's it's an important idea. The question of how close it is adopted by Bitcoin Core, I think that the uh, the policy of Bitcoin Core is not to touch anything if it's controversial. So. As long as the controversy lasts, there will be a uh, a sort of stalemate in Bitcoin Core. But I think that probably the miners, the Bitcoin miners, only very recently found out about this idea as of like July or something. And I think that that is the more interesting direction to probably go is to have them activated uh, unilaterally. But the uh, it's kind of intriguing that. Uh, in Bitcoin's history, usually Bitcoin Core puts out software that miners activate. And so I don't know if um, I, uh, miners feel guilty about like Segwit2x and these other historical events. And so that guilt may cause them to delay activating this idea. It's very hard to say because the idea has been around for 2015, since 2015. And it had like a little bit of like coming in and out of uh, interest. And now more there's more interest. I mean, there's certainly a ton more interest now than there was three months ago. And there's a ton more interest three months ago than there was six months before today. And uh, so there's a lot more interest. And now with Lightning um, needing more soft forks in order to work, that will probably break a lot of the logjam of the soft fork. Uh, we have a situation where I don't think anyone, like something like APO, BIP-118, any priv out, there's no real 
uh, opposition to that, but it still doesn't activate because people don't want to go through the soft fork activation process. So I think what, what needs to happen is either the miners need to realize that they, they need to take more responsibility for making money. Like they need to take responsibility for the Bitcoin network and not be passive. Um, and they need, because they think that being passive is the way to placate the uh, developers and the users. But I think that they, if they looked into it more, they would realize that that's a mistake. Um, but I can see why they would think that now. Uh, so we need that or we need people in Bitcoin to just Bitcoin core to uh, the stigma around doing the soft work should end because it is irrational. It's uh, the idea that we do all these different code changes. Um, we do all these code changes all the time, but only if something is a soft fork, is it controversial? It doesn't make any sense. We, I think how close it's very hard to say, but like you could point to like 119 where that was popular, then unpopular. And then, um, and then uh, Jeremy Rubin tried to activate it and everyone hated it. And now two years later, everyone sort of loves it again, or they want to switch to TX hash. I think the, uh, but there's uh, the so the big barriers are miners feel guilty and they don't feel responsible for their own you know uh, revenues costs and the fate of Bitcoin. They try to say that the developers are responsible for that and they just mine at the cheapest cost. So that uh, this is all because of guilt over Segwit two X. Um, all because of like whatever Bitmain or something. So that's one thing that could change. Uh, and the, the second thing is uh, Bitcoin Core could admit that regular soft forks are good and, and, and de-stigmatize uh, de them, which we now must happen basically because of uh, lightning uh, HLC issues. Stuff. Yeah. And, um, so, and then the third thing, though, that's big is that this new, this new attitude, it's like Michael Saylor-style attitude that Bitcoin has already succeeded and that it's only a matter of time before hyper-Bitcoinization happens. That has led people to think that we don't need to do soft forks so that soft forks are a risk, even though soft forks are not a risk because a soft fork does not change the protocol for anyone who's running a node. If you run a node, your node still does everything it was doing before and it doesn't do any new thing. So the idea of soft fork being a change is not quite correct. That's always it's confused the, me. It's like people yeah. don't understand the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork. Like yes. hard fork is a, is a de facto expansion of the rule set such that afterwards yeah. you have to, um, the previous rule set you were using to validate things no longer works. You need to expand it. So you need to do a hard fork so that your node can understand this new introduction of a rule. The soft work is a further constrainment, constrainment, whatever, uh, further yeah. adds further constraints yeah. to the rule set you were previously using, such that the one you were using is still valid. But if you want to add the additional constraints, then something else works. And that seems to be lost on a lot of people. So that like arbitrary soft works aren't that big of a deal. It's a it's an it's a it's an opt-in scenario. Yeah, like every time a, a block is found, it's sort of a soft fork in a way. Um, but uh, I think the the uh, one thing that we should really emphasize is that we many of the soft forks brought us a lot of these um, or just regular BIPs, you could even say. Like we wouldn't have HD wallets or BIP39 seed phrases without some kind of invention. 
But uh, even with the Lightning Network, you needed multi-sig, uh, check lock time verify, check sequence verify, SegWit. So those are all things that helped Lightning. And the idea of doing the soft fork on L1 to help L2, that idea should, um, I mean, that, that, is, that, that has been, that's how we got from 2009 to 2017. And that's, that's when, that was Bitcoin's big success, you know, in terms of price and adoption and culturally. And I think from 2017 to present, we've had a, a stagnation. And which I think is it's, 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 it's we've got a, it is the, the technological stagnation, but it's also it's mostly a cultural stagnation, where people have said this is because of the scaling war also, where Bitcoin Cash increased the block size and a BTC uh, did not. So the lesson was sort of BTC was not lured into making a hasty change. That was the lesson, like culturally. So we have to resist temptation. Uh, and that was the lesson, but it's, it's, but it's not correct. Really what happened was Bitcoin Cash had a terrible idea. And by, by creating Bitcoin Cash and having Bitcoin Cash failed or having it fail, that I think misled the whole community into, figure, into deciding on what a success looked like. Because after the SegWit blockade, it looked like distrust the miners, uh, don't change anything ever. Uh, lightning don't criticize lightning because lightning is perfect and it's a scaling messiah so all of the biggest problems in bitcoin were actually created as a result of our victory in the block size war the victory when is I, a, a pathway to many defeats when i when i think of trying to like in my mind mentally anthropomorph uh, anthropomorphize bitcoin i think of him as, like, as a really old conservative grandpa and like I think yeah. of all like the other ecosystems as like you know I'm I'm not afraid to like uh, you know high risk high reward Young experiments <laughs> yeah exactly and it's just yeah it's like it, I see you as trying to like explain to your grandpa like yeah, this is good grandpa like <laughs> you can still be old well the L one will still be the same uh, I think that it is uh. Like part of the problem is, as you say, 99% of the alternatives are terrible. So the altcoins, most of them are legit actual scams. Like they're not even just bad ideas or fringe ideas. They're just actual scams. And so if you advocate for sidechains, it looks like you want all these scams, but that's not the point. So let, me, let me, let me, let me just jump in and then ask you like, what sort of interesting applications do you want to exist on these l2 side chains like if drive chains were to exist yeah we're having Ethereum or whatever ecosystem but isn't it enough to have planet there's a many i can give you a long list but isn't it enough to have planetary scale like the next day and zcash level privacy that would already How make it the zcash level privacy we just copied the zcash altcoin we have copied oh, the so as a layer two, it already as you send your coins over there Got it. And then that becomes the shielded you pool. Are, yeah, you have a shielded pool. And then you have a Z, reusable Z address. So you have a reusable Z address. So just the fact that you have a reusable address, that itself is the biggest UX <laughs> improvement. That would be the biggest well, that UX the improvement. Of, that was experience. the hope of Taproot in some way, shape, or form was like leveraging mass to add privacy to like the optionality yes. of given the transaction. But that only works if you are interacting with someone, you have a smart contract, and then you mm -hmm. have a, like a cooperative close or whatever. That's not the same as this, where any any new people, if you a bunch of people are depositing, every new person adds to the, the anonymity set. And so every single user is in the set. Like a coin join, you only join with four other people at a time. 
But with this, you join with everyone who's using it, and you can join or leave at any time. And then, of course, coin join, you know, you have like a, it's a fixed amount. You have to have like a certain yeah. amount, but with not with the Zcash. And with Zcash, you don't, that's only if you use it as a mixer. If you just actually pay people within this shielded pool, you have the sender and the receiver and the amount are all, are all private. And with respect to scale, um, the idea is not just a huge large block sidechain. The idea is you have like 10 or 12 regional sidechains. You know, you have like, uh, you have like Western Europe and you have Southeast Asia and you have like, maybe you have like United North America and then you Whatever have like the rest of the world. You have like four. Boundaries you want to make. <laughs> yeah, you start with like four because most of the trade is of course internal to each region. So then you have that and then it's only like it's when I switch my dollars for euros or something. So... And then again, there's a night and day difference between all optional L2, large block, and a mandatory L1. Because people, first of all, people are very different. And many people are already going to be using Venmo and they're already going to be using whatever, WeChat Pay. You have these people who are, um, they, uh, like, even within a person, the use case is different. So, like, Ross Albright. He could be like buying coffee and then he goes home and then he's Dread Pirate Roberts on Silk Road, you know? But when he's buying coffee, he doesn't need there to be fully decentralized L1 whatever thing. But when he's on Silk Road, he can use L1 for decentralization and security or he can use Zcash sidechain for privacy. So people are very, very different. People are very different in how, how much can they afford a full node? For certain people like a Roger Veer, it's very easy, very, very easy for him to afford. A full node that is two or three thousand dollars a year versus a couple hundred dollars uh, up front and then you know, twenty-five dollars a month or something. So uh, so you have all these things who's willing to pay fees, who's willing to pay for a node, who wants which feature, who wants privacy, who wants decentralization. These are all big distributions where people are very different. So those two alone are a lot. But I think honestly, namecoin and prediction markets, those are those will be huge. In the future, you will own one name, and that will be your screen name everywhere. You won't have like, you won't be like, oh, I'm this on Telegram, I'm this on Twitter. You'll just own the thing, and on the blockchain, you'll be, always be able to communicate with the person with like on-chain paymail, which hides the physical location of everyone, since everyone downloads the blockchain and receives it. Um, you you'll be able to send like a message to like Edward Snowden. <laughs> You'll be able to send money to Edward Snowden, you know, and he'll be able to send message to his lawyer. And now the message on chain will just be the intro. So I don't want to be confused for like a Bitcoin SV type person because I'm not. We don't care about putting everything on the chain. But the idea is I would be able to send Edward Snowden a little message where he, he, he'll put up a sign like this says like, I'm Edward Snowden. It costs $200 to, to message me. But there'll be like a big name coin is going to be like a giant phone book on the internet with everyone's name in it. And you could click on their name and then it'll like decode. People have like a little spot, like a little bit of like a welcome sign or something. It says like, I'm Edward Snowden. It costs $200 to message me. My telegram is this. My whatever is this. My PGP key is this, whatever. You have like a little spot for that. And then uh, you'll be able to introduce yourself on chain if you can't reach them through the normal way. You pay on chain to the name, and you get this, this message. 
And the message will say, hi, Edward Snowden, let's use, we'll use these two burner emails or something. And the software will just do it all eventually. So you, have, you pay to introduce, and then you have encrypted uh, messaging back and forth, and you can send, you can send money back and forth. So the Canadian truckers is a perfect example of us dropping the ball completely. After what Canada tried to do, everyone in Bitcoin, everyone in Canada should be a Bitcoin user by now. But instead, we screwed everything up. We showed Canada that Bitcoin doesn't work. Because we tried to, they had to, they tried to organize this protest, and we tried to give them money, but it was very difficult. And then ended up the Canadian government ended up confiscating the Bitcoin anyway. So mm -hmm. we failed completely. Uh, I would, instead, in the name coin paradigm, there's just going to be a Canadian truckers protest. Will just be a name. It'll be like Google.com. You own the name, and then they'll start putting out messages and tweets with that, you know, with that hashtag or whatever you want to call it. And they'll have QR codes and they'll just they'll get it'll get out there, you know, all organized. And then eventually word will get out. We'll figure out, okay, this is the account responsible for this. And people will try to do phishing and stuff, but then they'll say that, you know, that you, it's too asymmetric to have the whole group meet and they'll say, This don't send to this account. This is a phishing account. That's why it has to be a human readable name. So I think that that'll be big. And you even see, I predicted this two or three years ago, maybe three years ago. I predicted that the darknet markets, since all they do is uh, introduce the buyer and seller to each other, and afterwards they can just communicate with each other, that what will happen will be it will decentralize further. There will just be people who give who do lists. They make introductions. There'll be like a middleman guy. It would be like a Silk Road would just be a middleman, and they'll do maybe keep track of the ratings. Uh, and everyone else will just be, it'll just be like, um, like on Telegram or something, which is now, I looked into it a few weeks ago, and that has happened. There's no, it's all just Telegram bots now. Telegram bots. You, should, uh, yeah. you should take a look at um, the privacy polls stuff that uh, Amin Soleimani is doing. We did an interview with him, uh, I think a couple interviews yeah. ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then, yeah, and then. In addition to, oh, it hasn't been released yet. Okay. Um, but he has some, I mean, his privacy papers, uh, or sorry, his privacy polls demo came out seven months ago and the paper came out like last month, but that'd be cool to, for you to look into as well as the um, experiments that they're doing from ZK hack in terms of uh, some of the winners in terms of interacting with other people through some like form of obfuscated identity, but then aligning um, essentially similar interests and then you being able to bridge communication channels with them. So Without cool. disclosing, you know, who each yeah. other are. Yeah. Okay. So. Let me wrap up my, there's a long answer, but it's an important question. Like what's, what's this for? Because, so we have scale privacy. And then I think there's other things like you should go to Namecoin and then BitcoinHiveMind.com is the, where the prediction markets project lives now. So you can watch my little 20 minute video on why I think that's important. You can bet on the future or you can bet on what would happen if, if we lived in certain futures. So you can say like, if we bet on, if we elected this party or what happened to the country, or if we fired the CEO, what would happen to this company or the share price or something like that? So that's that's all very cool. But the bigger, much bigger picture is that by introducing competition among developers, um, that's the more important thing than any individual idea. We have uh, the ability for any new idea to compete and make it out there. So that that's the really big thing. You know, it's like if someone launches YouTube, and someone and someone such as yourself asks. Well, what do you want to see people put on YouTube? But you see, that's really not the point. Yeah.
The point is, anyone can put anything on YouTube. They'll, they'll figure it out. You know, it'll be Chad Vader or it'll be Red Letter Media, uh, like review. It'll be something. You know, whatever it is, they'll figure it out. There's something for everyone, and uh, you know, that's it's not the point. The point is, that's up. That's between the sidechain developer and the end user, and that that relationship obviously can change over time as we learn more. The Canadian truckers, I think, is a great example. I mean, we should be able to send money to immediately to like whatever like um uh, netanyahu or um, um or, or zelensky or whatever you know what i mean like just or censor or, or putin or hamas honestly i'm not you know i wouldn't want people to do that but but they the point is it's this is supposed to be like a decentralized bank and that that's i mean does it work or not is the question i really think with the canadian truckers thing we it was bad for bitcoin because that was teed up for us. It was perfect, you know. It was like perfectly teed up for us. They were doing the absolute wrong thing for really no reason, and they were going way overboard with the whole banning the bank account of anyone who donated to the protests. It was like a completely nonviolent protest. It was. It was like. It was. Perfect. I saw that. It was pretty wild. Yeah. And we what probably... we did is we we yeah. just showed everyone that it didn't that it didn't work. I definitely. Uh, agree with the sentiment and and the effort to try and enable that permissionless innovation on top of Bitcoin. So I'm very excited to see where this goes and what ends up winning out. Okay. But we have a few more kind of trademark questions we have that are okay, quick to wrap up with. I'll start with um, in 10 words or less, can you describe drive chains? Hmm. Uh... I don't know when devs compete, users win. Uh, mm, fees align miners' incentives. That's nine words. That's something. Jesse. Uh, so my my question is typically: uh, Is what you do actually difficult? And you can interpret that however you want. I don't think so, but apparently it is because it's I, I, this idea is very easily misunderstood. I, I don't think it's that. It's not really, you know, under the hood, the drive chain idea is just a counter that counts to 13,000. I think, I think one thing that is, that I do very differently is, you know, most of my friends and family don't have, I don't like have a lot of like Bitcoin friends and family. I mean, I do have many Bitcoin friends and family, but I don't like, I'm very independent and I don't like, I don't like to like join the, it's very easy to have the cult mentality take over. And the Bitcoin tribe, and then people get like you know Bitcoin tattoo, and they're really big part of your life. And uh, echo chamber, and yeah, and there's just too much echo chamber. So I think that's the really difficult thing to do, or the really the really different thing to do. But certain types of people won't make it in an echo chamber. Like I, I find the echo chamber so annoying, and so so that's one thing that I kind I kind of worked really hard to. To not be too popular, almost on, pur on purpose. Christopher Hitchens said he wouldn't have dinner with someone if he knew he had to write about them later that day. So, so, uh, so I kind of feel the same way. I'm like, I don't know if I want to be too friendly with these people, even though I'm like all in on Bitcoin. But I, I but be part of being all in on something is, you know, thinking about it with all of your IQ points. You don't want to leave any behind. And that's just what people do: is they meet someone, and then they uh, they like them, and then their judgment is uh, affected. And yeah, the uh, 
And so you see, that's kind of what I what I do today. I push I push to say it, it could it's, it would be very easy to just say Bitcoin is perfect, right? TikTok next block, and just say and just put up like tweets. TikTok next block. Just, I've never heard of that. It's funny. Uh, oh yeah, people say it. Uh, and they say, uh, and you just go on mid journey and just make a, a Bitcoin Jesus Bitcoin or something or whatever <laughs> heaven Bitcoin Citadel. And uh, so I think that's the key is uh, to try to. Try try to be unpopular is the key, in some sense. Well, cool. I uh, wish you a lot of luck in your journey to continue to be unpopular. Um, I yeah. certainly like thank you the ideas you're you're pushing. <laughs> That's for. such a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the yeah. show. I certainly appreciate it. All right, welcome to the post interview, and Hello. I'm waiting for D to finish writing what he's gonna write. And we're back. There it is. Welcome to the post interview, <laughs> where we discuss what just happened when our interview with Paul. Yeah. What are your thoughts? You had some. You had some, I, you had some pretty hot takes in the uh, back channel. Yeah, I think. I think. Just, you know, him being the second person who I've heard talk about L2s on Bitcoin, which I didn't even really look into in any technical depth or care about because Bitcoin in my mind has already been ossified to the extent that all the research that's being done in the Ethereum, uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem or even other alt L1 ecosystems is going so much faster and in terms of like implementation than anything that they're going to be able to do. Um, also, you know, I think, yeah, there's there's so many different things that, like like a UTXO-based transactions from the privacy pools interview was clearly something that even Vitalik was reconsidering with extended UTXO models for transactions. Mm -hmm. um, so like, you know, Bitcoin, again, Bitcoin in my mind is like that old grandpa who's like gold, like he's a gold bug. And I get it. And I think that's exactly what it should be. I don't think that it should try to, in fear of it not maintaining relevance or wanting to be something more, try to bolt on the similar L2 solutions that Ethereum is trying to do, which are causing it to potentially lose a bit on decentralization in terms of the scale that it's achieving and in, and when it comes to like data availability you know that's something that paul kind of touched upon lightly that's something that now has to be a concern when you're scaling you know uh, mainnet with l2s you know where are the blocks that are happening in the l2s going to go long term because you know those l2s operate so cheaply and with such high like performance requirements of the underlying blockchain themselves that no normal person is going to be able to run that. So being a data janitor of the whole Ethereum ecosystem as as something that can provide like, you know, data persistence for um, you know, reconstruction of these, you know, state commitments. Like that's going to be a very important job and all these projects like Celestia and, and the other data availability solutions, they don't actually solve it, right? They just extend the ephemeral data uh, window. So like, you still need some part of it. That's it. Like how yeah. the aggregation and proofing systems of what, what you're embedding in the chain is more often than not what people are 
working on, but the ability to serve that data and hold on to it for long periods of time, no one is. But like exactly what you just said. I think that if there's a technical possibility for there to be permissionless innovation on Bitcoin, then it should exist. So like, I want these things because like Bitcoin is fundamentally a different blockchain than all of the other blockchains, period, because of yeah, the history of proof of work and it's um, like general catch up of the, of the networks. Like when you talk about crypto to anyone, they understand Bitcoin, nothing, not anything else kind of really. They, they, they'll, they'll at least hear the word Bitcoin more mm -hmm. often than not yeah. than anything else in the ecosystem. After all the crazy stuff that's happened, not as much the case, but still Bitcoin's still a thing. And so like if you're able to at least enable experimentation on top of it without changing the underlying protocol, which is what most of these things are trying to do because they can't change the underlying protocol. That's good because then we have a new area of experimentation to see if this works in what is potentially the most secure blockchain in existence. Uh, whether or not you're able to if do you, it. Yeah. Knows? I'll he read says, what Dean uh, wrote. Yeah, go ahead. As devs, are either of you interested in playing with drive chains? Playing well, they with? don't exist. They're playing with? Are you talking oh. about the idea? Uh, and the eventuality no, that they might No, zero exist. sync and BitVM are more interesting to me. Uh, I don't know. I I need to understand the differences better. Uh, I tend to lean towards zero-knowledge cryptography as a solution to pushing the like, innovation boundary much, much harder. But the exit scenario, which is mainly what the differences are for most of these things, is like how are funds pooled and how you get your money out in the event, you, in the, in the event that you want to is mostly different. So understanding those differences and how do you make a new one? So like, if I want to make sure spin up a drive chain, what is that, re what is that required for me to do? Does it require others to do? And that amount of like permissionlessness and the impact it has on the rest of the ecosystem makes a big difference. So like, yeah, I probably, I want to understand them, but like, I don't see it making a big difference in where I'm spending my time as a developer or like, I guess, funder of development anytime soon because mostly what I'm focused on is privacy. At a, at a lower, lower, lower level, like at the network level, things like that. So like, I don't know. It's interesting to me and I want to see it grow because one, it gives people more opportunity to build in different places and for people to fund that building because they think that development should happen in Bitcoin. So it's like, if this exists in Bitcoin, then there's more people in Bitcoin throwing their Bitcoin at people to build things on Bitcoin. That's just more development and more experimentation than there previously was. I don't see it as like this massive exodus from Ethereum. It's just more. Yeah, but that's the thing. That's what, like if I, I was listening to a bunch of the older podcasts that Paul did and, and really, you know, when I was asking him what drives you to, you know, build drive chains or to make this idea happen. He, I mean, he really wants to capture all of the, ideally, transaction fees that are happening in Ethereum and then move it to, uh, Bitcoin, right? Like that's that's what he really wants to have happen, and that's not going to happen. Even if drive chains do exist, 
I don't see that happening. Just like, you know, we see all these alt L ones spin up, you know, Avalanche or Polkadot or whatever, what have you. You know, they they create their own little ecosystem, but at the end of the day, you know, most of the activity comes back to Ethereum. So we'll see. I mean, like there's this dynamic over time. I personally don't see a world where like it's all under one chain in any chain yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I think they People all have a time different. period of relevance. Yeah. Yeah. Like the only value that any of these coins have at all is because there's a group of people that designate that value. Mm -hmm. And since people are so different, there's always going to be different pools of value because people will always agree on difference, like on, on what they think is valuable or like how they want to do stuff. There's never going to be a situation where everyone agrees on the same thing in terms of the base layer level value system. I mean, if you think about it this way, like all these L1s are essentially like different countries. He's trying to unify all the countries to use one global currency. That's never going to happen. Maybe it does. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, if you have a stick, <laughs> uh, maybe. Well, yeah, but statistically big speaking, stick. I don't think so. Yeah, a big stick. Yeah, big stick wins. I got a, I got a big stick somewhere. <laughs>